St. Louis, as we've said many times, is a city filled with ghosts. Where there is history, there are hauntings, which is why St. Louis has so many stories of haunted historic buildings, haunted graveyards, haunted streets, and even haunted people. It also has more than its share of haunted houses. But what makes a house truly haunted? Is it a one-time strange incident that occurred to a single occupant on a cold winter's night? Or is it a repeated phenomenon that is witnessed by many different people over a span of many years? That's hard to say because everyone seems to have their own definition. That's why we've chosen six different stories of haunted houses for two episodes of the podcast, episodes 27 and 28, pulled from a collection that dates back more than 20 years. Some of these stories you may have never heard before, while others may be familiar, but are actually the true story behind the legends that have circulated for years. Just keep in mind, though, that even with two full episodes to devote to these spirited dwellings, we'll still have to pick and choose from St. Louis's many haunted houses. We'll likely leave out a few because it seems there's at least one haunted house in every single neighborhood in the city. It might be the one next door to you. Or who knows? It just might be yours. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. The Lafayette Park neighborhood began just before the Civil War when pasture land was converted to a residential area surrounding a new public park. The first buyers of the lots in the new neighborhood were mostly affluent business owners who hoped to escape the crowded conditions downtown. As St. Louis grew in the 1840s, the population of Lafayette Park grew too. Construction came to a halt during the war, but picked up again almost as soon as it was over. Most of the houses that faced Lafayette Park itself were constructed in the 1860s, and the neighborhood continued to develop through the 19th century. And then came the great cyclone of 1896. The tornado that struck the city on May 27th had a greater and more tragic impact on the Lafayette Park neighborhood than on any other part of the city. The storm was part of a series of deadly tornadoes that swept through Missouri and Illinois. It first struck St. Louis on the southwest side of the city. It ripped across Shaw's Gardens and devastated an area south of Tower Grove and Vandeventer Avenues. The tornado then headed uphill toward Compton Heights. Nearly every house in this part of the city lost its roof. In some neighborhoods, especially east of Jefferson Avenue, homes were destroyed. Entire blocks of houses and buildings lost their upper floors, walls were blown out, and structures were reduced to splinters. 
As the tornado reached Jefferson Avenue, the Lafayette Park neighborhood was laid waste. The neighborhood, located on a slight hill, was a particularly attractive target for the twister. As it crossed Jefferson, it pushed against the side of the hill and ripped a path along Jefferson Avenue. The tail of the storm moved from north to south while the dense body of the tornado remained almost in place, revolving in the direction of Geyer Avenue. All the while, the winds that accompanied it wreaked havoc on the neighborhood in its path. The tornado swept over the Skull and Power Plant and ravaged the streetcars, men, machineries, and buildings there. It swung toward the south side racetrack and literally obliterated it. The storm rolled on, with lightning flashing in its belly, witnesses said, destroying more homes and then stripping Lafayette Park. By the time it reached the park, the storm was nearly three quarters of a mile wide. The trees were torn to pieces. Those not torn up by the roots were broken and splintered, stripped of their leaves and branches. The massive iron fence around the park was laid flat and the structured landscape was turned into a wasteland. The houses surrounding the park and in the nearby private places fared no better. The roofs were ripped off mansions and churches alike. Their walls were demolished. Broken bits of wood, brick, and stone littered the streets. Survivors wandered about the area in the aftermath of the storm, weeping over the destruction of their once beautiful neighborhood. Every home in the district was damaged, but many were wrecked beyond compare. In the end, the murderous storm lasted for less than 30 minutes and yet created such destruction that its repercussions lasted for years. In the wake of the tragedy, many local homeowners moved to the Central West End. It was not until the early 1900s before the Lafayette Park neighborhood truly recovered from the cyclone and from the abandonment of so many of its residents. By then, the damage was done. By the 1920s, the area had lost its fashionable upscale image and many of the once grand homes became apartment buildings and boarding houses for the working class. The decline continued through the Depression and World War II. The neighborhood slowly transformed into an impoverished, crime-ridden area and its elegant era was now deeply in the past. In the 1940s, though, things slowly started to change. An architect and historian named John Alberry Bryan purchased a house at number 21 Benton Place and started to renovate it. It was the first shot fired in a fierce and very lonely at first battle to take back and restore Lafayette Park. From the 1950s through the 1970s, more improvements started to happen. It continued to be slow at first and then began to pick up pace. Little by little, people began buying the rundown, seedy homes of the neighborhood and returning them to their former glory. An official campaign was eventually launched to try and bring back life to the area, and it worked. Over the last few decades, the Lafayette Park neighborhood has recaptured the Gilded Age in St. Louis, offering a look back in time to a period that had been long forgotten in this part of the city. Lights are once again shining in windows that have looked out at the park since the 1870s, and houses once thought lost to time and neglect are once again standing proud. New residents have brought life back to a part of St. Louis that was feared beyond hope, and some of these new arrivals have found some of the residents of the past have never left. In the 1970s, the early years of the Lafayette Park neighborhood restoration, there were a handful of hardy souls who braved the ruin and destruction of the area to restore some of the historic homes that had fallen on hard times. One of those souls was Timothy Conley, who bought the Blair Hughes Mansion on Park Avenue for about $12,000 after it had been condemned by the city. The house had been a rundown rooming house for close to 70 years, and before he could even start work on the place, he had to remove 78 two-and-a-half-ton truckloads of trash from inside. 
Partitions had been built in the spacious rooms to house more people. They all had to come down. A firewall was built three stories high beside the suspended staircases. The once beautiful walnut stair steps had been covered with road tar and paint. It took four days to clean the paint and tar from each step. There were 48 of them. The original owner of the house was Montgomery Blair, President Abraham Lincoln's Postmaster General. Many aspects of the house had been built to his specifications, like the ceiling in the drawing room. Blair had brought an Irish artist to St. Louis to create the ceiling, using a pale blue and stark white base relief with touches of gold leaf. It took Timothy more than a year, working eight hours a day, to carefully restore the ceiling. Inside of the walls, he discovered handmade 16-foot pocket doors that had been largely untouched for seven decades. They had been pushed back so far into their slots that no one had found them, which kept them in good condition. Timothy was convinced that they would have been turned into firewood years before if anyone had known they were there. All of the woodwork in the house was solid walnut, and all of it had been covered with many years of paint. When layers of linoleum were removed from the dining room floor, a beautiful parquet wood floor without a single nail in it was discovered. It took weeks to remove all the glue from the woodwork. The two years that Timothy spent working full-time to restore the house uncovered a time capsule at the antebellum period in St. Louis. It also revealed some of the secrets of the family who had originally lived in it, like the secret room between the floors that he believed was used as a hiding place for valuables during the Civil War, and the bricked-up cave entrance in the wine cellar. He also woke up the ghost. Conley was not a believer in spirits before he moved into the broken down old mansion. He was a high school teacher who grew up in Ladue, attended Christian Brothers College Military High School, and graduated from Regis College in Denver. He was a firm believer in something else though, the city of St. Louis and its revival in the 1970s. He moved into the Blair Hughes mansion and lived in its chaos as he spent nearly every spare hour and every spare cent restoring the place. He later opened a restaurant called Timothy's at 405 North Euclid in the Central West End, but it didn't last long. The house, however, has endured. Timothy's restoration saved the house and it remains a beautiful private residence today. But what about the ghost? When the mansion was a rooming house, there were often at least 60 people living there, but none of them ever occupied the third floor for more than one night. The stories of strange noises, cold spots, and pacing footsteps became so bad that no one would live on that floor. It was always vacant. When Timothy first moved into the house, he was living there alone. A cousin later joined him to help with the work and expenses, but in the initial weeks of occupancy, he had no one to keep him company. In the middle of the night, he was frequently awakened by loud noises, always coming from the third floor. Thinking that someone must have broken into the house, he ran upstairs to confront them. But of course, the third floor was always empty. One night, he heard another crashing noise and again dashed up the stairs. To his surprise, he discovered that a large piece of furniture had been moved from a front room into the hallway. It had taken four men to carry it up there in the first place. Timothy searched the entire house. There was no one else inside. After his cousin moved in, the cousin laughed at the idea of a ghost in the house, of course, until he heard it himself. He soon began hearing the weird noises from the third floor, and one night when he came downstairs very late, the stairs creaked four steps behind him. The hair raised on the back of his neck as he slowly turned around to see who was following him, and as the listener has likely guessed, there was no one on the staircase. The cousin never laughed again about the ghost after that.
Located in the troubled near north side of St. Louis is the Hyde Park neighborhood, which was first settled by immigrants from Virginia and Kentucky in the early 19th century. They were farmers who used the river as a way to bring their produce to the rest of the community. The main roadway through the area laid out in 1804 for Fort Bell Fountain was called the Great Trail. It was later renamed Broadway. The neighborhood was also home to many of the Germans who came to St. Louis in the 1840s. They called it Bremen and built hundreds of humble homes as well as some elaborate ones along North Park Place, along the gently rolling hills that rise toward the College Hill neighborhood. For years, the neighborhood thrived. Industry provided jobs to the local population. There were meat packing plants, stone quarries, and later automobile factories. The neighborhood is at the foot of the McKinley Bridge and it provided access for workers from the other side of the river too, but most of that is gone now. The neighborhood lost its prosperity when most of the industry moved out after World War II. Some of the factories and landmarks remain, but they're empty and vacant now. Most of them have been left standing to fall apart and decay. It's been deemed costlier to tear them down than to leave them standing. Sadly, that's became sort of a theme for the neighborhood. The Hyde Park neighborhood is often a heartbreaking place of broken promise and decay, but hope does survive. Around the corner from a ravaged row of abandoned homes, North Park Place stands nearly intact, with most of its houses occupied. Once a prime residence during the heyday of Hyde Park, longtime residents and rehabbers worked to keep the landmark street alive. This is one of the hidden jewels of the neighborhood, but it's not the only one. On a hill at the edge of the neighborhood looking down on Interstate 70 stands the elegant and well-preserved Bissell Mansion. Built far out in the countryside in 1823 as the oldest surviving brick residence in St. Louis. It was constructed by Captain Louis Bissell and the stories say he was very proud of the towering mansion. So proud, in fact, that he's never left. Louis Bissell was born in Connecticut in 1789 and came from an impressive line of American military commanders. His father, Major Russell Bissell, was the first officer in charge of St. Louis's Fort Balfountain. Louis was also the nephew of General Daniel Bissell, who became the first commandant of the U.S. Military Department of Missouri, and as such welcomed the Lewis and Clark expedition upon their arrival in St. Louis. Following in their footsteps, Lewis began his military career at the age of 19 and served on the western frontier in the early 1800s. After he left the military, he settled in St. Louis and began buying property on the north side. He acquired about 2,000 acres of an area that became known as Bissell's Point. It stretched from east of where he built his home in 1823 to the Mississippi River and north to Fort Bell Fountain, which guarded the confluence of the Mississippi and Illinois Rivers. In 1821, he married Mary Woodbridge, and together they built the brick mansion that stands today. Once it was completed, several other fine homes were built at Bissell's Point, and it quickly became the best address on the north side of the city. Unfortunately, Mary died in 1831, but Lewis remarried six years later to Mary Jane Douglas. They lived together in the mansion for more than four decades before he died there at the age of 79 in 1868. Over the years, the house changed hands a number of times. Frederick Kraft added the Northwest Wing in 1883, and the land around it dwindled. As the neighborhood deteriorated, the grand homes vanished and the city closed in on the house, which was once surrounded by nothing but open land and fruit orchards. But since 1986, the Bissell Mansion has been home to a restaurant and dinner theater. The second floor used for overflow dining and for private parties is where most of the ghostly activity takes place. 
The stories of the ghost didn't begin after it was turned into a restaurant, though. Strange activity was first reported when it was still a private home. The woman who was the last occupant there before it became a commercial property claimed to be closely in touch with the many spirits of the place. They included Captain Bissell, she said, along with several of her own children, all of whom had died in the house. Her stories were recalled years later when restaurant employees began having strange experiences, usually around the holidays. On many nights, including Christmas Eve, they heard children laughing, running, and playing in the house, even though it was empty at the time. Some of the Bissell Mansion ghosts are seen, not heard. For instance, Captain Bissell has been spotted many times over the years, standing and staring at the house from what is now the parking lot. He has also been seen walking inside, climbing the stairs, and peering out the window in the direction of the river. And he's not the only resident ghost who's been seen. A waiter once had a close encounter with a woman in a white dress on the second floor. He walked through a doorway and saw the woman in the long flowing gown in the middle of the room. He was so startled he dropped everything he was carrying. He later told other staff members that he was frightened at first, but then a feeling of calm came over him. Before he could do anything else, the woman turned away and left the room, taking a moment to smile back at him over her shoulder as she went. The waiter's description of the ghost suggests this may be the spirit of Mary Bissell, who died there in 1831. The restaurant and dinner theater have continued to be popular throughout the years, and it doesn't seem to matter how many people are in the place, the haunting can take place and occur at any time. Lights turn on and off, footsteps are heard long after the building has been closed for the night, and objects vanish without explanation, only to show up again somewhere else. A restaurant manager realized that every night after a performance, wine glasses were vanishing from the racks. She would find a different number each night, and occasionally that number would change from week to week. Several might be missing one night, and then the next night the entire rack might be full. Convinced that someone was playing a trick on her, she finally discovered that she was the first and last person to see the glasses each day. Whoever was hiding them, she found out, was not among the living. It's been in books. If you grew up in St. Louis, you probably heard about it on the radio or saw it on television. Aside from the Lint Mansion, there is likely no reportedly haunted house that is as famous as the Gim House in Webster Groves. It's a story of eccentric owners, lost treasure, and of course, ghosts. And it happens to be true. Well, mostly true anyway. The jury's still out on the lost treasure part of the story, but we'll get to that. If you go looking for the Gim House, keep in mind that it's a private residence. In other words, don't knock on the door. Several sets of owners have had enough trouble with that over the years. But you'll likely find the house easily enough nestled back a bit from the sidewalk in the 300 block of Plant Avenue. This is a quiet suburban street where not much out of the ordinary ever happens. It's a street of large old homes with neat yards and carefully trimmed shrubbery. This is the kind of street where people have backyard cookouts on weekends and the kids can still play outside after it gets dark. These are nice people with nice cars who live in nice houses. But the nice house you're looking for is different than the others. It has an unusual past. On the outside, though, it's really not that different from most of the others on the street. It's built from brick and wood and has no unique style that makes it stand out from the rest. It's a house. 
It has a large yard and trees and a short staircase that climbs to the front door. Like the other houses on the street, it has a large living room and a kitchen with a door that goes out to the backyard. There's a set of stairs in the living room that goes up to the second floor where the bedrooms are located. It's a house. It's a house like the rest of the houses on Plant Avenue, except for the fact that this one is haunted. Everyone has always called it the Gim House, but it was built by a man named Bart Adams in 1890. It was meant to be a summer house, and that's what he used it for during the first decade and a half of its existence. In 1906, the house was purchased by the man who became its namesake, Henry Gim. Henry has a bit of a colorful past. Henry and his twin brother, Harry, had grown up in Illinois. Their mother, Regina Ballett, had married Jacob Gim in Ohio after her first husband was killed. She had three other children at the time. Shortly after they were married, the family moved to Shelbyville, Illinois. Then Jacob died suddenly about six months before the twins were born. Whatever happened to Regina after that is unknown, but in 1870, Henry was living with a man named Thomas Fox, the station master for the Cleveland, Cincinnati, Chicago, and St. Louis Railroad. There are no records of what happened to his twin brother, but his half-brother, Jacob, ran a hardware store in Edinburgh, Illinois, for his entire life. The other half-brother, Peter, married a woman named Margaret Brownback, and they later moved to St. Louis. In 1880, Henry also moved to St. Louis and went to work as a ticket agent for the railroad. Presumably, the job was obtained for him by his foster father or family friend, whatever he was, Thomas Fox. Henry slowly worked his way up in the business community and ended up creating the Venice Transportation Company, which later became the St. Louis Railroad Equipment Company. His brother Peter became the company secretary, treasurer, and eventually vice president. Henry's fortune was made by developing the first gondola railroad cars, which are open-top cars that are used for transporting loose bulk materials. His company handled many different kinds of rail vehicles, and he also made a name for himself leasing cars to traveling circuses, which all traveled by rail in the early 1900s. This has led many to mistakenly believe that Henry was somehow involved with circuses and sideshows. He wasn't. It's also not true that Henry died in the house on Plant Avenue. What really happened is much worse. He died in a hospital suffering an excruciating death from spinal cancer in 1944. One of the legends of the house that is true is that Henry didn't trust banks. Because of this, he kept his money hidden in various places in the house. After the many bank failures that he witnessed during the depression, he preferred to keep large sums of his money in gold coins, and he kept those coins hidden in the house. Are they still there? Probably not. But this hasn't stopped scores of people from turning up on the doorstep of the Plant Avenue house to ask the owners if they can search for buried treasure on the property. But what happened to give this place a reputation as a notorious haunted house? Well, that's a great question, and the only way to really find the answer is to start in 1956, when the stories that made the house famous really began. That year, the S.L. Furry family moved into the house on Plant Avenue. It was Fanny Furry who first noticed that there were some peculiar things going on in the place. The realization came to her while she was trying to sleep. She couldn't because unseen hands kept shaking her awake every morning at precisely 2 a.m. One night she heard hammering on the headboard of the bed that was so loud she expected to see it broken into pieces when she turned on the light. However, it looked like it had not been touched. And these things kept happening, along with the tapping sound at the window. Every night, Fanny could find nothing that could be causing the irritating sounds. Fanny was an early riser, 
No surprise there since she was hardly allowed to sleep and came downstairs early one morning to find that a heavy wall sconce was mysteriously lying on the floor. It wasn't scratched or broken. It had just unscrewed itself from the wall. Fanny knew it had been attached when she went to bed the night before and when she asked her husband about it, he claimed he hadn't moved it. There was simply no explanation. It just happened. This incident was followed by the footsteps. They sounded like heavy boots and they stomped up and down the stairs all day long. Fanny described it as the sound of someone looking for something upstairs and downstairs that he could not find. The footsteps always ended on the upstairs landing. At first, Fanny was the only one who heard them. The sound always occurred during the daytime when she was the only one home. She hesitated to mention the odd happenings to her husband. He was a practical man with no interest in ghosts or anything of the sort. But he soon noticed how upset and stressed out she seemed and he asked to talk with her about what was troubling her. She spilled everything and he laughed. Nothing had disturbed his sleep, he assured her, and he hadn't heard any phantom footsteps on the stairs. There was nothing wrong with their new house. Ignore the problem, he said. It'll go away. Typical man. But it didn't go away, and her husband didn't laugh at her for long. On the morning after she told him about the happenings in the house, he sheepishly told her of his own experience from the previous night. He'd also heard some strange noises. He couldn't explain them just yet, but he would. Old houses make all sorts of noise, he assured her. He'd figure out what was going on. Well, he didn't figure it out. In fact, soon became a wholehearted believer in the idea that the house was haunted. He awakened just a few nights later to see a wispy white shape that passed directly through the door to the hallway and vanished into one of his daughter's bedrooms. He ran to the door and looked into the dark room but saw nothing. The shape had vanished. He tried to tell himself it had been the reflection of headlights from a car that had passed by the house, but when a vehicle drove down the street a few moments later and the strange light didn't reappear, he was no longer convinced of that. Over time, the furries got used to the strangeness of the house. Too much work, money, and time had gone into the place for them to give it up. Besides that, they didn't want to admit that they'd been scared away by a ghost. But then there was the morning when their three-year-old daughter asked them an eerie question over breakfast. Who's the lady in black who comes into my room at night? When Fanny was able to catch her breath, she asked for an explanation. Her daughter told her that it was an old lady who led a little boy with her by the hand. She'd seen the old lady quite a few times, and sometimes the lady spanked Fanny's daughter with a broom. But the little girl added, it doesn't hurt though. Well, that was the last straw for Fanny. After nine years in the Plant Avenue house, the furries moved out. The house was put up for sale, and it didn't remain on the market for long. In 1965, the Walsh family moved into the house with two of their three children, Wendy, age 10, and Sandy, age 20. They were told nothing out of the ordinary about the house and noticed nothing strange at first anyway. A few weeks after moving in, Claire Walsh was preparing dinner one night in the kitchen. Her only company was the family dog who suddenly began acting very weird. Claire looked over and saw that he was cowering and shaking with fear. Claire bent down to see if she could calm the animal and suddenly realized what was scaring him. There was a figure in the kitchen doorway. It was white and hazy and roughly the size and shape of a person, but had no features or details. It shifted slightly into the living room and then it vanished. Claire knew right then she'd seen a ghost. Unlike most people though, she wasn't frightened. 
More than a decade later, she wrote about the incident, quote, I have a master's degree in science and I'm not inclined to believe things without proof. All I can be sure of is that there was something in the house besides our family. Claire moved past the sighting and tried not to think about it. Nothing else happened in the days to come, so she put it out of her mind, at least for a little while. But then, of course, other things started to happen. First, it was the weird sounds, knocking and tapping that wandered about the house after dark. Then she heard footsteps going up and down the staircase in the afternoon. There was a presence of some kind in the house. She couldn't explain it, but she could feel it. She knew it wasn't her imagination. She was determined to find out everything she could about the house they were living in. In February 1966, she broached the subject of the house's history with two neighbors over supper. She casually asked them if any of the past occupants had mentioned anything odd about the house. Well, why did she ask? Well, Claire admitted she'd noticed some strange things, knocking sounds, white shape in the kitchen door, and the footsteps that seemed to be made by someone who was looking for something. The neighbors, the Kurus, nodded in understanding. They told Claire they had almost bought her house when it came up for sale, but a man who lived across the street talked them out of it. He'd been a frequent guest to the previous owners and their experiences had convinced them the place was haunted. The Kurus bought the house next door instead. Claire now had someone else to talk with and went to visit the neighbors across the street. That man told her a story about the past owner of the house, Henry Gim, although he didn't know the name at the time, who had hidden valuables all over the house. He was convinced the man's ghost had lingered behind and was now searching for the treasure that was still hidden away there. Well, she wasn't sure what to make of the story, but she did start watching for things to happen in the house. When the attic door began opening by itself, she searched the attic. She found something unusual outside of it. The attic stairs had a step that contained a hidden chamber. She lifted off the tread and found a hollow space inside. It was empty, but the hiding place was real. Could there really be money hidden away somewhere else in the house? Claire's discovery of the hiding spot didn't make the attic door stay closed. It kept opening and closing without explanation. When her husband came down with the flu, he started sleeping in a separate bedroom so that she wouldn't be exposed. One night, she heard the attic door open and close four different times while she was trying to sleep, but assumed it was actually the door to the spare bedroom. The next morning, though, she learned her husband had never gotten out of bed during the night. The footsteps kept marching up and down the stairs and the attic door kept opening and closing over and over again. Claire became sure she was missing something, so she decided to search the attic again. She went upstairs one morning after breakfast and found the door open, of course, and entered the storage area. The last time she'd been up there, everything had been neatly arranged and stored away. This time, though, she was startled to see that everything had been moved around. A heavy chest of drawers that was against one wall had been opened, and one of the drawers was hanging loosely on its slide. Claire stepped over to it and saw that it was filled with blueprints. She picked one of them up and looked it over. The name Henry Gem was printed across the bottom. As she stood there holding the blueprint, she felt the urge to walk over to the other side of the attic where furniture had also been moved about. How had it moved? Well, she knew that no one in her family had moved things in the attic, but there was no one else in the house, so was it her resident ghost? The furniture had been moved in a way that it seemed a path had been cleared, but to what? And then Claire saw the outline of a door, still partially concealed by a chair. It appeared that someone wanted her to open the door and see what was inside, but Claire refused. She simply didn't want to know. 
She left the door closed, but this still did not stop the strange happenings. The footsteps continued their daily march up and down the stairs. One day, the break front on the dining room was open and the drawers were rearranged. Claire's dresser was open one afternoon and her clothes were scattered about the room. She was the only one in the house at the time. She later learned that she and her husband's bedroom had also been Henry Gim's bedroom. If it was his ghost searching the house, perhaps he'd mistaken her furniture for his own. In early March 1966, Claire was in the basement and her daughter Wendy was playing outside in the back garden. Overhead, Claire heard a child running through the dining room and kitchen. Assuming Wendy had come inside, Claire called out to her. There was no answer. She called again and when the girl didn't reply the second time, Claire went upstairs to check on her. The house was empty. Wendy was still outside. Five days later, the entire family, except for Mr. Walsh, was out of the house attending church. He had slept in that morning, and after the family left for church, he came downstairs to make breakfast. He was making coffee when he heard a child walking around upstairs. Worried that Wendy was sick and had stayed home from church, he went to check on her. Her room was empty. So was the house. When Claire and the girls came home, they all sat down to discuss the situation. They believed there were at least two ghosts in the house, the man who walked around searching for something and a child. The Walsh family had no idea about the woman in the black dress that was seen by the furry's daughter or the little boy that she had led about by the hand. About a week later, Claire was up early in the morning and found the attic door standing open once again. The furniture in the storage room had been rearranged once more, which explained her vague recollection of dull thudding sounds coming from the attic in the night. Claire believed the sound had been made by a large steamer trunk that was now sitting in the middle of the floor. Then she saw something even stranger. Among the smudges in the dust on the floor were what appeared to be letters that had been written in a child's hand. It looked as though someone had tried to write their name. She knew it had not been done by her children since they were too frightened to even come into the attic. So who would it have been? The ghost? Claire didn't think about it any longer. She fled the attic, but she still couldn't stop thinking about it. She went back to the attic the next day. The writing was still there, but there was also something else. The imprint of a small hand. More time passed and the incidents continued. The attic door opened and closed. The footsteps pounded on the staircase. Cries were sometimes heard at night. Keys clacked by themselves on a typewriter in Wendy's room. Lights turned on and off and the family dog, who'd always been a happy pet for the seven years they'd owned him, became an addled and restless version of his former self. It finally became too much for them. The Walshes decided that the ghosts could have the house if they wanted it. They decided their next home would be a brand new one where no one had ever lived before. They'd never inherit anyone else's ghosts again. On the very day they moved out, as Claire stood at the front door with the last box in her hands, she heard the heavy footsteps as they climbed the stairs and then fainted away. Soon after, the house on Plant Avenue became the property of Robert and June Wheeler and their three children, and they've lived there ever since. They were really the first to research the history of the house and correct some of the misconceptions about the place, like the fact that Henry Gim was not the builder of the house and that he didn't work for the circus. The Wheelers were also the ones that discovered Henry Gim really did keep his fortune in gold coins, and he really did hide them around the house. The Wheelers have lived in the house for decades, and they became convinced soon after moving in that it was haunted. The events that have occurred over time have been unnerving, but not frightening enough to convince them to move out. They experienced much of the same activity as the owners of the house before them, including hazy figures, being awakened by a violent bed shaking, a family dog that was troubled by something unseen, and noises from an empty attic. But they often found natural causes for many of the events, and when Robert and June started discouraging the notoriety of the house, a lot of the ghostly phenomena 
decreased. They theorized that perhaps their unwillingness to accept the haunting caused the activity to fade. It could have been that the energy in the house dissipated over time, as often happens with many reported hauntings. Or perhaps the Wheelers just stopped noticing the oddities around them. The constant harassment by reporters, writers, and curiosity seekers became too much, and the family just turned themselves off to what was going on. Whatever the reason, the house on Plant Avenue is now a pretty quiet place. Is it still haunted? Well, I think it probably is, although perhaps these days it's more haunted by its history than by the ongoing presence of Henry Gim and the bevy of specters that once roamed the place in years gone by. that is wisted <laughs> what what <laughs> oh man Rue two construction began to halt oh, fuck <clears throat> I must start that paragraph over sorry this is a little rockier than the last one welcome to American Hauntings podcast where we discuss history hauntings legends lore and all things paranormal You are listening to episode 28, which is the 15th episode of season 2, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Well, here we are again, uh, ready for another episode. Um, Into fall this time, which is nice. So last time I said it was fall, even though it really was... It was close. (laughs) Like the day after Labor Day. So even though technically, I suppose fall is still officially a few days away at least it seems more like fall now yeah we're a little bit further on so. no again most and wonderful time I should of the also year. mention lisa is here with us today as well hello so, um the three of us are here working on this episode um yeah actually actually i look i look at it i know i said that it was fall because it was after labor day but it's really after it's really fall now because we've already done a tour um, uh, okay we had an alton tour that was on the 15th on Saturday. So we also had our fall festival on Saturday in Carlinville that we always go to every year. So it kind of felt, now it feels more like fall, even if it's not like nice and cool, at least it's, it seems like kicks off the season. Exactly. Fall always starts for me once we've had a tour and when I can bring out all my scarves. Yeah, yeah that's true. Then it really feels yeah, that official. Is a fashion and thing, And then yeah. the flip-flops have to go away. That's sad. That's the sad part. That's the sad part, but the scarves come out. Yeah, you know what? You quit wearing the flip-flops, and I quit wearing those stupid sandals. I don't... Yeah. You know, which everyone wants me to quit wearing, as I took all kinds of grief about it at the conference this year. Really? I, I've never given you crap about oh, your sandals. Oh, yeah. I, they do, boy, In they sure were. Yeah, they sure were. Hey, I like having my feet breathe so 
You're not wearing socks with it or anything. Well, no, it's not of like... course not. Though that would be unacceptable. <laughs> that would really be unacceptable. So, what did they say to you about your shoes? A paranormal Jesus. Don't you remember that? <laughs> oh, yeah. That, but, yeah. Oh my well, God. we okay. called you that, but we called you that for a lot of other reasons. Yeah, well, too. whatever. But... I thought people were giving you trouble, like, oh, their dad shoes or something. No, paranormal no, Jesus. because I'm I Koi was sitting there going, yeah, you know, he got the beard and the sandals look like of course koi may have Is may have had one or like? two drinks yeah he did at that point did he yes koi you're getting at, called out at right that here. point in the evening he did and he may not even remember this at this point oh, that's how late it was in the evening that's so funny yeah i so. only remember that nickname because at one point you were in the center and literally like 15 people were seated around you yeah, captivated not, by no, your stories I wasn't, I wasn't even saying anything uh, you didn't have to oh, that's how captivating you were <laughs> oh, there are pictures of that i okay. vaguely remember Whatever. this that'll give luke nalaborski a run for his money because a couple years ago in decatur at our conference he actually came dressed up as Jesus. oh yeah we, had a co- we were doing costume parties at the, at the conference and you had to my rule was that it had to be some sort of historical figure mm-hmm. it could be like dead abraham lincoln but it had to be a you know yeah historical figure and luke came as jesus right here (laughs) so it's pretty funny awesome yeah it was a good one it was a good one so um anyway i guess we should should get into this because um i did mention we've had our first tour of the season uh with quite a few still to go over the next month and a half um some of our dinner tours like uh ghost of the river road tour that lisa and i do some of those are sold out already um, so the dinner tours are filling up really, really fast. There isn't much left, uh, but we still have plenty of bus and walking tours in Alton. We've got our bus tours coming up in Decatur. Of course, we've got our tours in Chicago. Uh, we added um, a new line of walking tours to um, the Chicago tour. I was nice. up there. Uh, Ken and I, my friend Ken Berg and I put that together, gosh, about 10 years ago. We put together a downtown walking tour, which it was the only downtown walking tour in Chicago, ghost tour. That's, That's crazy. the only one there was. And I still don't think there are any others, and at least not that I'm aware of. Uh, but we decided to bring that back this year because it's a it's a fun tour, and we get to go into some locations, and it's something a little bit different that you don't normally get to do in a big city. Yeah. Um, so we we brought that back. So I was up in Chicago right after our last episode. Um, we were kind of you know working out some of our our details on that. So um, there's a lot of stuff coming up this fall uh, that we're super excited about. Um, there's a couple of places. Um, I'll save that for our next episode, but I'm going to be speaking in a few places, uh, doing a couple of events in addition to the stuff that's already on our websites. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff coming up this fall that we're really excited about. So I'm I'm glad that to get to do these, you know, the podcast to get to catch yeah. people up on some of this stuff. So it's it's exciting. It's very exciting. So yeah, it's nice to remind people that you know we do love the podcast, but the podcast is just one small part well, that's of true. a bigger that universe, American Hauntings universe. Yeah, because well, and with the publishing, I mean, I uh, our last episode, I had just put out my newest book, "Suffer the Children," had just come out. Uh, it's been out a couple of weeks, so thank you to everybody who ordered that and used their 10% off podcast discount, because if you're a subscriber or you're a listener to the podcast, all you have to do is put the word podcast in the as a promo code when you check out, and you'll get 10% off. So thank you to those. If you haven't done it yet, why not? What are you waiting for? Wrong with it's you? scary but, kids. Yeah, <laughs> but if, you, really if you did, thank you very much. And also, but that's the other news we have, um, just today... Uh, is the online release of, if you're an Illinois listener, of Kaylin Chardon's book. Kaylin, some of you know from the conference, and if you've been on the Haunted Carlinville tour, 
uh, in central Illinois. If you're an Illinois listener, you may have met Kaylin. If you're not, if not, you should because that's a fun tour. That is a good tour. That's an that is awesome a really tour. good tour. And anyway, her book Haunted Carlinville just came out this weekend. Uh, we released it at the Fall Festival in Carlinville, and it went on sale online today. So you can get that today and, and still use the same 10% off podcast promo code when you check out. But um, that tour, that I, I wrote the foreword for the book and I did mm-hmm. a, I did a little uh, something that happened to me on that tour that we had done. I mean, we've done a lot of events at the McCoupin County Courthouse. It's, it's got this infamous, we'll, we'll get to it because... Well, should I even spoil that as to what our next season of the podcast is going to be? Oh, no, I better not. All right, we'll I wait. I won't. We'll wait. Let's just say that you'll probably hear more about the Carlinville McCoupin County Courthouse in, in the future here. But anyway, um, we have done it. Kaylin's done a lot of tours there, and we've done some events there and stuff. But Lisa and I had gone, was it? 2015? Oh, those are the dark ages. The I can't 2015, remember. I'm pretty sure, was the very first Haunted Carlinville tour. I think that's right, three years ago. And we went, and uh, Kaylin, you know, hadn't ironed out her cabooses and all this stuff. Lisa and I were just kind of there for moral support uh, on that very first tour. Which she that did she not did, need Which she didn't need, all. no. But, um, but it was fun to get to go along and, and see the tour because, I mean, I'd heard her stories and I knew the stories and knew what she was putting on the tour, but I hadn't actually heard it presented as a tour yet. So it was fun to get to go along on it. But she had asked me to go upstairs and turn on some lights in the courtroom upstairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actual courtroom is up on the second floor. And she'd asked me to go up and turn the lights on. So I went up and turned the lights on and had an an encounter, let's say, okay. by myself in that thing. And I, I won't go into all the detail right now. Just it's in the forward to the book by the book. Um, <laughs> uh, but and like I said, I'm sure you'll hear about it at some point in the future. But that is a spooky, haunted place. I mean, that courthouse is something else. I mean, it is it's an active working courthouse. I mean, it's not you're not going into an abandoned billion building or anything, but they, you know, have given Kaylin, a key to use to go into the courthouse so that we can bring our tours in there and we do ghost hunts and stuff in there. They're really great about it. But, um, you know what I think about when I think about courthouse is the word energy. There's energy still going on there. And I think it just wrestles up all kinds of, uh, ancient, uh, mishaps. Yeah. It's, it's something else. It is a very spooky place, but I guess my point is, is that, um, she's doing four or five tours there this fall in October. And if you've never done it, I mean, if you're from Illinois, it's it's like in the middle of everywhere. I mean, you can come from, you know, Decatur, Springfield or wherever, Alton area, wherever, even St. Louis. It's an hour, little hour and a half maybe away. And a lot of people aren't familiar with Carlinville. And it has this, like a really great history. And it's really haunted, man. And that courthouse, the courthouse alone is worth the trip. Yeah, I got to say. And uh, Kaylin does a really great tour. And anyway, so the exciting news is that her book came out um, and it's available to order today online. So if you um, want a good history and hauntings book about central Illinois, pick this book up. So it's a good book. Awesome. And, you know, you know, something we haven't done lately is thank everybody who has joined up on our Patreon page. Oh, yeah. I know we haven't talked about that much lately. No, we so. definitely need to thank all of you who are on our Patreon list and invite people who have not checked that out yet. And maybe you want to jump on there. It 
is low cost to you and helps us get some more um, equipment for our our podcast. And like Cody said, this is a bigger thing than just the podcast. So it gives us some help too. But I've been having a lot of fun with sending some of this yeah, stuff you've out. Sent, she sent out, she oh sent my out gosh. some stuff that on, I mean, it wasn't even, wasn't scheduled. It wasn't stuff. scheduled, yeah. just but it, no, but so. that's why I had Troy. If you look up uh, on our Patreon page, it says on there that whenever oh, Lisa true. gets inspired and Lisa gets inspired more than Troy <laughs> wants to pay for stamps, but you know what? <laughs> so if you sign up, you can get things like, um, access to our Facebook page. You can get early access to events and early newsletters. Uh, it, one option is free entry to our conference that we have right. every year and uh, some of our meetups that we have, uh, well, actually around the country uh, when we do some of our traveling. And if you are one of our Patreon members uh, at that level, you can come and meet meet up with us. What else? Oh, t-shirts. T-shirts. Oh, my yeah. gosh. The t-shirts are one of my favorite things to send. Yeah, because especially the brand new one. The brand new one which, that's coming out. Yeah, oh, well, I it's don't out, want to it's give out, it away. It's, well, actually, yeah. By the time the time we're recording this, we haven't released it yet, but it's a good one. It's so. probably my favorite. And yeah. so those of you who have been into the paranormal for a long time, you are going to appreciate this new t-shirt that I can send you. And then also there's just a regular swag too that I love to send out stickers and buttons and we have new magnets now so they don't oh, yeah. stick to your car, yeah. which yeah. I yeah. love. We just stuck them on our car. Yeah. So nice. Yeah. Leah actually got a package the other day and it had the buttons and the stickers and everything. I didn't even know she signed up for it. Yeah. She was trying <laughs> yeah, to not I tell wondered, me. I wonder if she did. Yeah. And it had a nice cute card and everything. And I was like, what is Lisa doing sending us <laughs> mail here? A Taylor Mercantile. What is like, what is this? Yeah. Yeah, Lisa's been busy. Yeah, so you know, it was but great. But I get inspired sometimes, too. And uh, one example is I just recently sent out to all our Patreon members uh, a, an interesting piece of evidence that was given to me with a little bit of a bio. And I just asked for some feedback. And I got some really great feedback because there are people out here who have been yeah. researching the paranormal for longer than I've been alive. So it was awesome <laughs> yeah. uh, to to get some of that. So, yeah, go and sign up. Why don't you tell them where? Yeah, all you have to do is go to Patreon. I think we, Cody, you usually put that in the show notes, don't you? Yep, but yeah. Patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Um, and you can get signed up for them. There's all kinds of levels and different kind of options that you can get and stuff. And it was funny Lisa mentioned the conference because we just recently also uh, released the conference lineup for next year. So we'll save that. We'll talk more about the conference a little bit later because we'll update the website a little later this month and uh, we'll start talking about that going into January when tickets go on sale and stuff but we've got some really cool stuff I mean good speakers lined up already for this year but in addition to that some after hour events again like we've never done before um, including one that you know and we should we'll probably talk about this more later but um, Karen A. Dahlman is is one of our speakers this year and she's one of the directors of the uh, Talking Board Historical Society. I believe that's the right designation. Anyway, she um, is doing a workshop on how to use a Ouija board. Oh, and, nice. I mean, how to use it correctly, yeah. you know, so that you don't become possessed by Satan. I think that's or, really important it to is have important. Ouija positive. I know, it is important yes. because um, it's got such a education. bad rap. It does you know, get a bad, so. every time I make a joke about it, my family gets so mad about ghosts cleaning people my house. Yeah, people just don't understand that it doesn't have to be a negative thing, but she's doing a kind of a how to positively use it to, you know, in positive ways. And that's going to be a great workshop. I mean, in it addition to fun. all the other stuff that we're doing this year. So I'm, I'm, 
we always start getting excited about the conference in the fall. You know, I mean, it's a blast when we do it, and then we start talking about it, and you know, but we'll we'll save that for I want to give later a teaser, episodes, though. but. Just wait till you see this year's T-shirt. Yeah, the T-shirt this oh my year gosh, is going to be really I think we've cool gone too. So overboard, yeah, it's yeah. going to be awesome. Yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be a good year. So I'm looking forward to it. So yeah, so I guess my point is we have lots and lots of stuff on the horizon. Um, not only you know the conference, which is you know distantly on the horizon, but we've got a lot of stuff coming up this fall. Plus, we've got new episodes of the podcast uh, coming up. We're going to be wrapping up our St. Louis season. Over the next, I'm not sure how many weeks. Don't even um, say but a I'm not even gonna. I'm not gonna try and predict how many weeks the 1949 exorcism is going to take. But as a lot of you know who listen to this podcast already, you know that this is one of the big passions of mine. Um, I've written, uh, you know, I wrote a book on the exorcism. I have been researching it since the 1990s. So you know, pre-internet research believe it or not and, you yeah know, i know it's hard to believe there was a time when there wasn't an internet uh where you could just cut and paste you know wildly wrong stories <laughs> about things uh, every time i come across another story about i come across a lot of stories but my two big pet peeves are the people who post things on the exorcism and the myrtles plantation yeah. and they're badly really wrong information stories it just drives me crazy and so we're going to correct a lot of the myths about the exorcism and tell you really the true story of what happened because um, I interviewed pretty much everyone involved in it at one time or another uh, before their deaths. Sadly, they're pretty much all gone now. Uh, but everyone who was directly involved, I spoke to. And um, that's going to be part of our story, including some stuff I, I haven't even put into print uh, because it's it's so recent or, you know, reasonably recent. Um that it hasn't even made it into a book yet. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to these episodes that are coming up. I'm just not going to make any predictions as to how long they are. But you know what? We better talk about this episode. Yes. Because you know, I think people are probably wondering, you're waiting for us to get to some of these stories that we, that we talked about in the episode today. Right. So let's jump into our uh, latest batch of haunted houses out of St. Louis. Yes. The first one is in a very interesting neighborhood in St. Louis, uh, Lafayette Park. Yeah. And I had no idea about this but i have a co-worker that li just moved to lafayette oh, like really? square and uh yeah. he's i started telling him that we were going to do an episode about this and he goes are you going to talk about the cyclone yeah <laughs> and, yeah you can't talk about the lafayette park neighborhood without talking about the cyclone so yeah that was um that's one of those things that has left a, a lasting impact on that part of the city i think um you know because as i mentioned in the monologue it was hit harder than I mean, a lot of, there was a lot of damage in the city, you know, on that in May of 1896, but Lafayette Park, for whatever reason, just seemed to get the worst of it. Yeah. And this was an area that had been a neighborhood by, by that point for uh, almost 50, 60 years, I guess. They had been, um, you know, a lot of homes had been built. There were a lot of people who had, you know, kind of like in the last episode, we talked about the Central West End and the private places. This was an area that... Um, I guess you would say, I, I wouldn't say that they were, the people who built the neighborhood originally, I wouldn't say that they were probably less wealthy um, than the people who built all those private places, but they were a different, um, a different, 
I guess a different group of people. These were mm-hmm. merchants. These were wealthy merchants, bankers, um, people like that, um, who had moved down to that area uh, because it had become available and it was marketed to a slightly upscale kind of people around town. You know, it had been, a, it really it had just been used as a goat pasture. It was a commons. And they decided to build that park. Um, and then they then marketed the neighborhood to people who could afford to move there because they wanted to make it a nice neighborhood. And they did. There, there are a lot of beautiful homes, but these are not like the kind of mansions you see in the Central West End. They're more like the, the um, like the like a brownstone or like a white stone, like mm-hmm. you see a lot in Chicago. They're more of that type of home, which is more personally, I find more appealing. Um, I've always I've always liked that area of the city. Um, I think Lafayette Square, Lafayette Park neighborhood is just such a such a neat part of the city. And I was really glad in the last, you know, it's it's been a while. It's been 30, 40 years. But if you go down there today, really, it's really come back. It's right. really nice. Well, it had know. to come back because the, well, the storm yeah. was three quarters yeah. of a mile yeah. wide, you yeah. say. And yeah. it said it only lasted for 30 minutes. But the Which destruction is really, was... think about that. That's a really long time. Yeah. I mean, 30 minutes, you say only 30 minutes. You know, when you think about the devastation that it was caused, 30 minutes is a long time. Yeah. But if you sit and count out 30 minutes or, or even just sit and count out, okay, put it this way. So you're watching a video on Facebook and now the new thing is to stop it in the middle and run an ad yeah. for 45 seconds. You're welcome. It seems endless. Yes, okay? it does. So imagine what 30 minutes of utter horrendous chaos and storm must have been like to people who had i mean this was the day before days before meteorology and that kind of thing so i mean the the weather was you know the signal corps that yeah. was the only weather there was back then that you know the the army corps of engineers put together a weather warning stations that went up that used telegraphs i mean it was by the time you know even today it's hard to predict a tornado but imagine what it was like in 1896 yeah there was no way you could predict anything like that so nobody really knew it was coming things looked bad and you know we didn't have the kind of we didn't have drills in school we didn't have any of that kind of stuff so people were caught largely unaware when these storms i mean there had been tornadoes ripping across illinois and missouri for the last several days when this finally hit but when it did hit, I can't imagine what it must have been like to have lived through it with very little, if any, warning yeah. that it was coming. Do we have any idea of like a death toll or anything? Um, I... You know, I know that there were several hundred deaths. Um, I could I could give you an I know the exact amount is in Haunted St. Louis mm-hmm. in the book because I do talk about the tornado in there a little more extensively than I did in the monologue. But there were quite a few people who died. I mean, it was um, it was a it was a hell of a storm. Yeah. And then, so okay, so throughout the years, people start to try to revitalize the area, rebuild. And well, it did. It, yeah. it did. For the first probably 20 years, they, they rebuilt a lot of the devastation. But unfortunately, by the, by the time the Depression came along, um, that had turned into a you know, pretty rough part of town. Because a lot of the wealthier people who lived in the neighborhood left after the storm. They moved to the Central West End because that seemed further away from the, you know, the crime and the, the grime, the crime and the grime of yeah. downtown St. Louis. And they moved to the Central West End. And so the people who did rebuild um, did the best they could. But by the late 20s and into the Depression, 
I mean, a lot of those those homes that, that had survived the storm were turned into apartment buildings and, you know, boarding houses. And it just started to kind of really go downhill. And by, you know, the end of World War II, um, that was a that was a rough area of town. Yeah, that was. Yeah, it was it was not it, it was unfortunately more like what the north side is now. You know, oh, OK, um, that north side is is pretty rough part of town now and um and for the same reasons the industry left i mean for for a different reason really because the industry all left and left everything just sitting to rot on the north side like detroit or Um, something right well and i and i talked about that in the monologue when we talk about the bissell mansion i mean the north side now that's what a lafayette park ended up Mm -hmm. being similar to but you know by the late 40s and into the 50s and and really you know, there were some attempts made in the 40s and 50s, but it really wasn't until the 70s that it's really started to kind of swing back around. And when I mean, you know what it looks like now, it's a nice it's a nice yeah. area now, uh, but it, it really had to swing back around. Yeah. So Timothy Conley in the 70s buys the Blair Hughes mansion right. on Park Avenue right. uh, for 12 grand. Right. I know, which, I know, which is not only a great deal, but you're also buying a house that was one of the founders of the area. Yeah. Uh, Montgomery Blair was not only the postmaster general under Abraham Lincoln, he was a friend of Lincoln's. Um, he was he also founded Benton Place, mm-hmm. which is real nearby, and uh, kind of really uh, right off Lafayette Park. And um, so this was technically should have been this historic esteemed home. Yeah. Instead, it had been a boarding house for 70 years. Right, and you've been yeah. to move out 78 two-and-a-half-ton truckloads of yeah, trash. That was, that was my favorite part, 78 that's ridiculous. Two and a half ton truckloads of trash, just nothing but trash. And then after he gets all the trash out, he starts renovating things and looks inside the walls, found found handmade sixteen foot pocket doors, um, which is, I mean, I it's it's like when you rip up carpet or something and yeah, find, find like beautiful just, hardwood, yeah, underneath. you know. Yeah. But he just keeps finding. Well, and all he kind of had that same thing, except it was all under linoleum. Yeah, and they had glued it down, so he had to get all the glue off the right. hardwood. But my favorite part was about the stairs, though the the stair the walnut staircase that had been covered with tar and paint. Oh yeah, there were like um, forty eight of them. Steps, yeah. and it took him four days to clean each step. Just one step took four days to get all the gunk off. Of. That's dedication, so, right I there. I know it. I know it. So, but yeah, and then again, it goes back to kind of what we talked about in our last episode, um, his remodeling and revitalization of the house seems to kind of have woken up the ghost. Yeah. And um, then he had a lot of weird experiences. Um, it's, he's, it's some pretty good stories. And I, you know, I, I kind of nutshelled it in this, but had a lot of experiences that he didn't think anybody would ever believe, you know, when he was telling these stories and his cousin moved in and you know, thought the whole thing was a big joke until he got followed down the stairs by the right. ghost. You know? And then so, he's out of there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I, I enjoyed that story and I thought it was something, one of them we definitely should include in this list of haunted houses. So. Yeah, absolutely. And then moving on, uh, we're going to a different part of St. Louis by, by the Hyde Park neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and you talk about a main roadway through the area that was called the Great Trail, later renamed Broadway. Right. Right. So, so think... everybody knows Broadway and, you know, a lot of people are familiar with um, are familiar with what's happened with Hyde Park and the north side of St. Louis. Um, if you have traveled on Interstate 70 and you've come down through, you know, there and you're coming toward downtown and you take a look, if, say, if you're going toward downtown, take a look off to your right. 
It's sad. Yeah. It's sad. It's really sad. This was a beautiful, thriving neighborhood, and it's it's certainly not the fault of anyone who lives there now. Um, this was something that was done, you know, in after World War II, all of the industries, the, the packing plants, the automobile plant, everything moved out of there. Mm-hmm. They just abandoned that whole area. And, you know, I, I talk about it a little bit more in, in, the, in the book, but... You know, this was a whole area that's just been left to decay because they always said, well, eventually at one point they plan on just bulldozing the entire, the entire neighborhood, the entire north side, which is tear the whole thing down. Yeah. Um, but they just really cut it off and abandoned that area and left it to poverty and crime. I mean, that's what it was abandoned to. And, you know, the buildings that are left, some of the old churches and the buildings and the the old um, fraternal lodges, all that stuff is still standing, but it's literally falling apart mm. because it was cheaper to just let it stand there and rot than it was to tear it down because nobody wanted to put any money into the North Side. And yeah. It's still that way. It's still, it's a sad situation. I hate to see it. I mean, when you drive down through and you see on the hill, there's one of the the old original water towers that are still there. And, yeah. you know, people ask me about those all the time. And so I did a, a section about them in the book just to explain what they were. And that's one of the most prominent ones. Everybody sees it when they pass on 70. They don't know what it is. And it was a, it literally was a water tower. It was a cleaning plant for the water to pump it through the whole city. Mm-hmm. But because the north side, when that was built, the north side was an integral part of the city. I mean, this was where all of the industry was in St. Louis. And now there's just nothing. It's just been abandoned. And it's it's a sad situation. But there there are parts of it, of course, that have survived. Um, you know, there are a couple of areas on the north side that are that people have really taken great care of that they really have have revitalized and fixed i mean that's where the candy kitchen is if you've ever been up there you if you have it you gotta go i mean it's one of those things that shows up on you know man versus food and diners drive-ins and dives and stuff because they're great great burgers and fries they've got ice cream and that the guy from man versus food tried to do like 20 shakes or something and he threw up because that's no one can handle that much dairy you know um but it's a great little place and it's just sort of this little island of, you know, in the middle of all this decay is this great little place. And I would say the same thing about the Bissell Mansion. Yeah. I mean, it's just this great little well-preserved, elegant house that still exists, and it has a great history behind it, and it's the oldest surviving brick house in the entire city of St. Louis. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's sort of hidden there, but you can see, and again, it's one of those things you can see from I-70 when you're coming toward downtown. Look over to your right, you'll see it sitting on top of the hill. But that was Captain Bissell's mansion. I bet, I, bet I've passed it oh, a you thousand have a times. times. There's a yeah. big sign, but you got to be watching for it to know that it's there. Yeah. Um, so he, so you, some people say that uh, he was really proud of this building and so proud, in fact, that he's never left. So he died there uh, at the age of 79 in 1868. And then the house changed hands a number of times. Quite a few times. Yeah, quite a few times. I mean, it's been through a lot of different history. A lot of people have owned it over the years. Uh, but then it wasn't until, um, gosh, I, I can't, 86. I know it was in the mid 80s. I think they turned it 85, 86. They bought it and turned it into um, a dinner restaurant and dinner. They have dinner theater and yeah. that kind of thing. And it's turned it into a nice place. And um, it's it's been around for a while. A lot of people have come through there. And, you know, like the Lint Mansion, who does their own kind of dinner theater thing, it's of course, has its resident ghosts uh, from 
Captain Bissell to his first wife is believed to be the lady in white who haunts the place. Mm-hmm. And the 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 children ghosts that a lot of people have reported to that play well, that's your favorite. Yeah, thing, of course. Um, play a lot of pranks and that kind of thing. That um, apparently that that date predates the dinner theater. I guess the lady who owned it before said that those were her children. Yeah, yeah who all died in the house. Died apparently. in the house while she was living there. I guess in the you know. Yeah, I know, right? Do we need to investigate this woman? Yeah, uh, what, I, I what don't know. I, but she um, she was the last owner before they bought it and turned it into the dinner theater. So I'm not sure when these kids died in the house, but, you know, she was living there in the 70s and early 80s at least. Um, but she claimed that the, the ghosts there were, were Captain Bissell and her kids, her own kids. Crazy. And then uh, when it's the dinner theater, a restaurant manager, I love this, realized that every night after performance, wine glasses were vanishing from the racks. And I think that this is also how you would know that I was haunting a place because all the wine glasses and beer well, bottles would just be Lisa disappearing. Was haunting the place. So. Yes. Hey, now. <laughs> all the wine glasses. No, it would not be the glasses. It would be the wine. The bottle the itself. Wine, so. I have no use for those glasses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, all she needs is the bottle. When you buy a bottle, you're pretty much getting a big wine glass, well, right? Exactly. You know, it's a good way to Thank look at it. Understanding. <laughs> yeah. I understand. As somebody who doesn't like to do dishes, I, I understand. Uh, okay, so the last house that we're going to talk about um, has a lot of stories. I know. It's. I mean, it was. That and they're was great. The, that was the lengthiest part of the monologue to do. Yeah. Was the was was the Gim house. I think we could have done an entire episode about this could've. house after we probably I read these. Could have really because there is there was so much. And it was, uh, it was, where do you include all this stuff? Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it, it technically it kind of boils down into just a handful of things. It's just that it's so many different people right. had experienced it over the years. And really, I had been, um, I had, I've written about this house before, but when I did the new edition of Haunted St. Louis, I was excited because I had a lot more material than I'd ever had before, because as it turned out, a friend of my mom and dad's turned out to be related to Henry Gim, uh, but like a distant relation. And That's he gave awesome. me a bunch of um, family history stuff, which is where I came up with all, found all this stuff about, you know, where he'd been living and his twin brother and his half brothers and stuff. I That was the first time any of that had ever made it into print. I he, He'd had all this stuff when he was doing genealogy research mm-hmm. and gave it to me. Uh, he remembered that told my mom that he knew that I had written about a bunch of this stuff. And so he gave it all to my mom and she passed it on to me. That's awesome. And so that was kind of cool because um, somewhere he realized this name, I guess he did a, like an internet search on, you know, on the family and yeah. then it popped up that, you know, that I had written this oh, article nice. about, yeah. you know, the house being haunted. I mean, I'm not the only one who's written about it, obviously, but, um, but it's one of those things that I just, I really enjoy this story. And, um, it's just, and it's, it's not, it's nothing like you would expect. And I tried to get that across in the front part of my, at the beginning of the narrative that this is, this is just a house. I mean, this is not, it's not the Limp Mansion. It's not the Bissell Mansion. It's not some spooky old, you know, place that looks like a, you know, Victorian house the Adams family would live in. This is just a normal house. It's not even that old. It just dates back to the, you know, the end of the last, or I guess, it's not the last century anymore, is it? The beginning of the right. last century um, and the end of the 19th century. It's not that old of a house. And there's nothing really out of the ordinary about it. When you see it, when you go in the neighborhood looking for it, it's just a house. And all I'm going to ask again, and I think I mentioned this a couple of times in the monologue, but 
please don't go to these people's house and knock on their door. Leave those people alone. Leave these people alone. This is a private residence. You know, they have tolerated this for many, many years that they've been living there. And good-naturedly, really. They're pretty good about the fact that, you know, they know that the house is, but they've just sort of ignored it. You know, they, they, they say, yeah, these things happen when we moved in, but mm-hmm. I think things are pretty quiet now. Right. Well, and a lot of people go there apparently because they think that they can find some <laughs> hidden money, Lost hidden treasure. hidden gold yeah. coins. Well, I think, and that might have been something that I think that dates back a few years. I mean, we're talking about 70s and 80s. I know that that happened a lot. Uh, people would show up at the door of the people that lived there at the time asking if they can search, you know, with their metal detectors in the mm-hmm. yard because everybody was convinced Henry had buried – and he, he probably did. Yeah. Um, and that much of the story was true. He did hide around, a lot of his money around, but I think it's been gone for a really long time now. So I would imagine. And yeah. he made that fortune um, – so part of it was developing the first gondola railroad yeah, cars? Yeah, so every time you see a railroad car when you're sitting stuck waiting for a train to yeah. go by and you see – see a railroad car go by that maybe has gravel or grain or something in it and it's a one of those kind of almost they come up in a v shape and they've got an open top on it with maybe a tarp over it yeah that's who invented that and he Um, he made a fortune by just taking the roof off yeah that's all he did he you know he put them in a he made a design and he took the roof off nobody had thought about how easy it would be to load those cars yeah but he's the one who came up with the idea and that's how he made his fortune yeah, that's that's crazy. And so there's some rumors ab- about this place, um, but some are not true. Like you said, he didn't die in the no, house. He didn't die in the house. So that doesn't yeah. really explain too much. Right. But however, people do think that one of the ghosts in there might be him looking for his money well, or that's, moving that's always furniture. Been the, you know, when you hear these stories about a man or, or what seems to be a man, because nobody actually sees them, mm-hmm. but they hear like these heavy boots stomping around the house and following the same path all the time that the... The idea that some of the people who have lived there have come up with is that it seems to be the sound of someone searching for something, which, I mean, I guess would make sense if he, you know, went to maybe he died believing that maybe he'd left something behind or I don't know, you know, but yeah. it, it makes sense. But it's, I, you know, nobody can say for sure. And and some of these stories come from the furry family. Um a woman who's seeing or he- hearing all this crazy stuff happen. The attic door keeps opening and closing, opening and closing. Husband doesn't believe her for long. Or doesn't believe her, but then he, he's he's a believer pretty quickly after he starts experiencing um, a lot of these their his own experiences. But then we can't ever get away from it. So, of course, one morning the three-year-old daughter asks him in an eerie question over breakfast, who's the lady in black yeah. who comes into my room at night? And leads a little boy around by the hand. Yeah. That, that, that was, that's the part that never – well, actually, the woman doesn't either. Right. There's no explanation for who this woman might be and who she, who the little boy is she's leading around by the hand. I, I don't know. I mean, and I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. it doesn't seem to have any connection to the actual house, but maybe there's something that we don't know, you know, yeah. that's in there. but. That I think was the that was the final straw for the furries. Yeah, you know, that I, was for their for that family. That was enough for them. I don't blame them, yeah. especially with the little girl said that sometimes she would spank her with a broom, but yeah. she added it doesn't hurt though. Yeah. You're like, yeah. yeah, okay, we're we're out of yeah, here. Yeah, that's weird anyway. So so then in 1965 we move on to the Walsh family, uh, who also had three children, um, and they said they weren't really frightened at first. 
or let's see, unlike most people, though, she wasn't frightened. And I like how she says, I have a master's degree in science. I'm not inclined to believe things without proof. All I can be sure of is there was something in the house besides our family. Right. Well, and when she looked, when the dog, when she was in, I think that was the beginning of it for her, for Claire Walsh was in the, she was in the kitchen and then the dog was kind of staring in the doorway, you know? Right. With, like, like, you know, they what's do. in the door. And then she turns around and sees like this, I don't, I mean, a, like a misty shape mm-hmm. kind of thing. And, um, I mean, I don't think a degree in science was enough to tell, you know, right. convince her that that wasn't something out of the ordinary that she had just seen. So. so one thing I wanted to ask you about with her that I have to know what happened because this drove me crazy. Um, so she's keeps thinking she needs the attic doors opening. She thinks she yeah. needs to go up the attic. And she says that it looks like things were moved, moved around and, and a path was kind of leading to a door, mm-hmm. but never opened. It. Why wouldn't you open I the door? Know. I don't know. But apparently as I can't find any notation for the entire time they lived there that she ever opened the door that could have changed everything i, know, I feel but like she wouldn't open it for whatever reason i mean she found all kinds of other things and found like the handprints and the dust yeah. and all that stuff and little uh, kids name kids names writing written and stuff but didn't open the door i guess i don't know either too freaked out or something i don't know when they when they make a movie of this yeah. you know if i don't think they ever will they should have already in my opinion this would be a good you could blow this thing up into another conjuring kind mm-hmm. of movie but um that would be a good scene i mean there's a she had so many good there's so many good scenes with the walshes yeah. in this i mean it sounds they, like it. they're so far they're so their stories are so much better than the furry stories I mean, these stories with the handprints and the things moving around in the attic and finding the blueprints yeah. with Henry's name on them and all that stuff. I mean, there's just that was some good stuff. You know? Yeah, I was expecting her to and see. Go a into sequ- the, I mean, it was like a right out of a movie. Goes to the neighbor's house and the neighbor said, "Oh well, you know, we thought about moving in there, but the guy across the street convinced us not to." I mean, this is a movie. It man. really is. You know. <laughs> Uh, but then it has a sort of a different ending. So Robert and June Wheeler move in, and they say they they think that it's haunted, but they they, they have ignored. But they, they have ignore busted it. Busted the ghost by ignoring it. Yeah, pretty much. They just have just decided they're not gonna. They don't with feed it. the troll. Yeah. yeah, they don't. They don't. They don't go along with it. And without the, I, they I guess they feel like that without feeding the story that it just it it goes away, and apparently it's either gotten so quiet. I think it probably is fate. I think there's a combination of things. And I think I said that was that, you know, with a lot of hauntings, you know, the energy will fade out over time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of what happened here. Plus I think them ignoring it and refusing to feed into it doesn't give it the energy that it needs to continue as either. So I think that probably it may still be going on, but they just don't acknowledge it anymore. You know, I think they just have had so many people coming to the door and so many people who have, you know, you know, they looked into it. They 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 checked out the the history of it. They corrected some things, mm-hmm. and they just decided that they weren't going to play. They're anymore. they're over it. Yeah, and um, they still live there. I mean, they're still there. And um, and again, please leave them alone. Yes, please do not go knock on their door because they're not going to let you investigate their house. Um, so just leave them alone. Um, but it's uh, it's a pretty quiet place, you know. So. But it's such a great story. Yeah. I mean, it's just such – it's one of those things that uh, is this untapped thing. But you'd have to, you know – you couldn't say that the haunting continued because apparently it hasn't. And there hasn't been any dramatic things that happened to make it stop. So that leaves out the, you know – conjuring movies right so, yeah so know, it's so. kind it kind of ends on a happy note yeah, I since guess. it just kind of I guess. fades away yeah so but 
I do love the story, so I was glad you didn't mind that I took so long with that one. No, so, it's it's great. You know, I tried to maneuver these two episodes and, the, and six stories that I'd chosen. I tried to maneuver the shorter ones into the last episode so that I could have more time for that one because I knew it was going to be big. So, Oh, there was, well, actually, there was another thing that I was going to ask you about. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, right. Um, but I didn't know if we should – I didn't know if we should do this on here or not, but I wanted to ask you about it anyway, so I figured if I was going to, I might as well keep it recording. Um, we haven't talked about Hereditary yet. Oh, yeah. Good God. Well, yeah, what did you think? Well, well, you know what I posted. I did, I did see your post, yeah. I will tell you that I have spent my entire life watching horror films mm-hmm. from probably age – I don't even know. I mean, uh, probably before I started school, I was watching Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman on the early show. I, I still remember though. I remember that vividly as a, as a young kid watching this stuff. So I have, I've spent my whole life invested in horror films. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a massive collection of books about horror movies, in-depth analysis, everything. I love them. I absolutely love them. I can watch just about anything but crap. Mm -hmm. Um, there are a few movies that have scared me over the years. Um, you know, some that are uncomfortable enough that I think about them later. You know, I will always think about scenes from the changeling, the 1980 George C. Scott, which is in my opinion, one of the best ghost films ever made uh, about a haunted house. Um, the end kind of falls apart a bit, but the movie itself you know, with the seance scene and the ball rolling down the stairs, I will always think about those scenes. And there have been others. I mean, uh, there's been plenty of movies that I'll, you know, that will make me jump or, you know, will give me something to talk about later. But I don't think I've ever seen a movie that I find to be as scary as Hereditary. Wow. Um, there are things in it. It's a slow burn. Yes. It's, I mean, it's definitely, definitely by the producers of the, of the Witch. Which, again, was a slow burn, which I really enjoyed that movie. I wouldn't call it scary. I just found it really atmospheric and very well done. Um, But Hereditary, on the other hand, had some scenes early on. Things moved along slowly. Mm -hmm. We won't spoil anything. No, that's why I'm trying to be careful not to spoil it. There were some things that definitely got my attention early on, even when the, let's just say the seances started Mm -hmm. uh there were a couple of times that i jumped but i will tell you and the end is weird but all the clues are there the clues are there through the whole thing all you have to do is watch it's true and when you get to the end it all it's it's all been revealed to you as you've went if you've paid attention yeah so if you're gonna watch it turn your damn phone off don't be checking facebook or twitter just watch the movie because all the clues are there but i will tell you in the 10 minutes or so Leading up to the the ending, I've never seen anything quite like that on film. Yeah. I've never seen anything that scary on film to the point that I was watching it alone, uh, sound system on, turned up loudly, and I think that if someone had been standing outside my door, they would have thought I was being murdered (laughs) because I was actually yelling out loud, swearing at the TV because there were a couple of scenes that scared the shit out of me. Seriously. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of scenes. I, I just, like I said, I've just never seen anything like it. And I've been watching horror films my whole life. I think I've seen, I, I don't even, I couldn't even give you a number, but we're into the 
well into probably over a thousand different horror films and a lot of them have been crap i mean there's a lot of crap out there but i've seen a lot i've seen all the best horror films there are um from ghosts to you name it i've watched it and i'm not going to say this is the best horror film i've ever seen but what i will say is that it scared me more than any other horror film i've ever watched and there are things in this movie i've never seen before yeah so if you're looking for a recommendation there there's your recommendation but you you've got to have some patience and you've got to cut out the distractions just watch the movie and but you've got to just sit and watch it and be prepared because it's different i yeah. mean it's very different and it's but it's it's terrifying and you know as bizarre as the ending is it's all there. Mm-hmm. You you can you can see it coming once it gets there. Yeah, and that's but. that's why you know obviously we don't really talk about movies, but I knew that it had such an impact on you. And I'd, well, we're going to do a special episode. That's going to be one of our special episodes this fall. Um, we're going to do um, the best ghost movies. Is going to nice. be one of our special episodes. So um, I've got a list of I've got a list that I've been keeping for years, and Hereditary is not going to go on a list of ghost films. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll. I've got a list of ghost movies, and but we're going to do that as a as a special episode, uh, one of our episodes in October. So maybe we'll uh, we'll get that recorded and we'll play it maybe Halloween or something. Yeah, put it up. Even though I think we have a show on the thirtieth, but I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it'll be our. Th- we did that last year. I think we did a special episode for Halloween. We did. Last year. We got super hammered and yeah, told our, that's right. our stories did. from that's our That's right. Past. We did our stories. So I think we're going to do ghost movies for our Halloween episode this year. So um, be prepared for that and. Um, but if you want a recommendation, uh, watch Hereditary. It's, I'm I'm so glad film, you loved it. I so. I went to the theater by myself on like a Saturday morning because I was like I'm not gonna. That's how I saw The Witch. Really? Because yeah, I was funny? like I, I was like because I, I like to do that anyway. But I say like, I'm not gonna subject my girlfriend to this, and I was so glad I didn't because she would have been so upset mm. with me. My God, Leah would have been in a. We'd have had a. She'd be in a straight jacket now. I, if she had watched. I that, got home so. and she's like, looked at me. She's like, "Are you okay?" <laughs> and I was like, "I just need a minute." Yeah. And it is again. It's a slow burn, but it pays off. Man, once and it gets go, once it gets there, it's man, insane. It's insane. Awesome. Well, I just wanted right. to ask you. Yeah, about no, that. I'm glad you did. So, but and it gave us a chance to plug our 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 ghost movie yep. episode. So. All right. Well, I guess we should wrap this up. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, Lisa, anything you want to add? So, See you later. All right. Well, there it is. So see you later. So anyway, <laughs> guys, thanks for listening. Um, again, don't forget to, uh, to get onto iTunes. Wherever you listen to the show, just get onto iTunes. Um, I've actually got the link to the actual uh, how you get to iTunes just from any computer to our show. And you can leave a review there even if you don't listen through iTunes. I think most people do. But yep. uh, for those who don't, um, please just leave us a review. Uh, it makes it easier for people to find it, and we really appreciate it. So anyway, thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can check the show notes to find links to all of our social media accounts. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to some of Troy's books as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beckham.